Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? If you'll notice, I pulled a John Park today and I left the lights on. Called a John Park because he's the one who started it. And I get to see you for a change. You guys don't get to just see me, but I get to see you. Uh, it's good to be here this morning and to have the privilege of opening God's Word and studying it with you. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. Chances are you knew what book I was quoting from after only the first six words. I could have told you what book that was from. And to be honest, I've never read it. Much to the chagrin of my wife, I'm not a big fan of the classics. I'm just not. I much prefer a good fantasy story like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, um, or even a sci-fi uh, type of book. Um, but question, what book is that from? A Tale of Two Cities. Well, what's that got to do with our series in Acts, and specifically this passage this morning? Well, I aptly decided to title the sermon, Tale of Two Men. So there you go. That's why I picked it. Um, we're really looking at a tale of two types of men or two types of people. 
Um, and from the title, if you had guessed, I have a two-point sermon. Um, I have a lot of sub-points, so don't worry, we'll be here for a little bit. But the two main points right off the top of the bat, if you're taking notes, one, the first type of person is the humble and faithful, and second is the prideful and bitter. The prideful and bitter. So first of all, let's look at the humble and faithful. In this passage, who is that? Well, we have three of them. We have Philip and Peter and John. So let's look first at Philip. If you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 8. You should already be there. If you don't, we have Bibles at the end of the rows in the baskets or pull it up on your app. Um, Again, we're in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Verses 4 through 25. So how is Philip humble and faithful? How is he humble and faithful? Well, if you remember from last week, um, a great persecution hit Jerusalem. Stephen had just been stoned to death, and Saul started persecuting the church in Jerusalem grievously, so much that it caused all the Christians in Jerusalem to scatter except for the apostles. And so, again, how does this make Philip humble and faithful? Because he preached the word where he was sent. They're scattered. And where, Peter, where Philip goes, he preaches the word. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Everyone was scattered. It would have, easy, it would have been easier for them when they got scattered because they were being persecuted for the name of Jesus to just not say anything. But the early Christians wouldn't do that, and they couldn't do that. They could not stop talking about the resurrected Jesus. So Philip heads to Samaria. It's just a little blurb in our text. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. But that is huge. That is a huge statement. And why is that huge? Well, you've got to know the backstory. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along, and that's a huge understatement. In fact, some scholars say close to a thousand years, the Jews and the Samaritans had been fighting lots of disdain and hatred between the two. The Samaritans kind of practiced their own form of Judaism. They even had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Lots of hostility going on for a long time. And this was drilled down deep in the culture and the psyche of the Jewish people. So for Philip to go there and preach the gospel was momentous, to say the least. Though if you recall, if you were here at the beginning of uh, our study in the book of Acts, in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we have to, we have to note that up till this point, all the gospel ministry has really been in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And it took this 
persecution that God sovereignly ordained to cause the believers to scatter and take that to Judah and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. So how else was uh, Philip humble and faithful? He performed signs and miracles and baptized believers in the name of Jesus. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. So take your, your eyes and look down at your Bible or your app, and let's look at 6 through 8. The crowds were with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. And then down in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he, what did he do? He preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. So how does that make him humble and faithful? He didn't come blowing horns and all pomp and circumstance and making much of himself. He came with what he had, and that was the good news of the resurrected, resurrected Christ. And that reminds me of another passage in Acts that we've already looked at, and that's in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you remember this, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he, being the beggar, the lame man, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive, receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. This is what Philip does. He comes to Samaria. He's preaching the gospel of Christ, and he's doing these same things. He's healing the lame. He's driving out demons, not for his own glory, but for the glory of Christ. And then Peter and John, how are they humble and faithful? Well, first of all, let's look at what happens in verses 14 through 17. So again, look down at your Bible. Verse 14, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So what news did they hear? They, that the Samaritans had received the word of God. They had trusted in Jesus. Verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So why did the apostles need to send someone? Samaritans hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. We'll get to that in a second. They laid their hands on him, verse 17, and they received the Holy Spirit. So why hadn't they received the Holy Spirit? If you want to get a whole big old in-depth answer to that, that's going to be at least one or two, three sermons on its own. But let's see if I can just hit the high points here. So in Christianity, there's two viewpoints as to how we receive the Holy Spirit and when. First is what we would call a two-stage initiation. Um, 
Pentecostals and Charismatics kind of hold to this in that at the time of you put your faith in Christ, you get the down payment, you're saved, but you don't really have the full experience of the Holy Spirit until somebody prays over you and lays hands on you, and then you get fully baptized and you get all the miraculous stuff, normally speaking in tongues. And I, as I was thinking and praying about this this past week, why is it always speaking in tongues? And I think, and this is just my opinion, it's the easiest to fake. You can't fake the gift of healing. I mean, there are people that kind of do when you go to these healing crusades, but it, that is really hard to fake. Speaking in tongues, you can fake. You can just babble whatever and say, I'm speaking in tongues. I've got, you know, the gift of tongues, and there you go. Um, a number of years ago, and I mean a number of years ago, it, was prob- it might have even been before Leslie and I started coming to Genesis, we were invited to a local church. Uh, a friend of ours was, I think, pr- singing in the band that night, um, and that church has, happens to be on the charismatic side. And, you know, music was great. Sermon was iffy because it was Marilyn Hickey. If you don't know that name, she is a Word of Faith teacher. A health and wealth teacher, meaning the more faith you have, the more, the, more, uh, the more health you should have, the more wealth you should have. God's just going to bless you spiritually, or financially and physically the more faith you have. Really bad, bad stuff. And to, to be honest, I don't even remember what she said. It's been that long ago. Um, towards the end of the service, there was a time where, okay, if anybody's here and suffering from, you know, extended periods of sickness or pain or whatever. I just want you to stand up and people around you lay hands on them and start praying for their healing. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'm okay with that. You know, nothing weird there. We're just praying for God to heal people. But then at the end, at the very end, she goes, and if you've never spoken in tongues, if you've never been baptized in the spirit, at the end of our service, I want you to come over here to the corner of the auditorium and we're going to lay hands on you and we're going to pray over you and we're not leaving until you're speaking in tongues. And let me tell you, I was tempted to see how dedicated they were to that. (laughs) I was so tempted. And what's wrong with that viewpoint? Well, number one, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God, and we can't command him to do anything that he hasn't already sovereignly decided to do. Two, Paul specifically tells us in 1 Corinthians that there's no one spiritual gift that's universal, you know, that everyone gets. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by, one, by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then later on in that same passage passage in verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? 
Are all teachers? <clears throat> do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? For those of you that aren't big in the English terminology, that's called a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is no. The answer is no. Not everybody's a prophet. Not everybody's a teacher. Not everybody does miracles. Not everybody has the gift of healing. Not everybody speaks in tongues. So when you go to a church and they say, we're going to lay our hands on you and we're going to pray over you and we're not leaving until you speak in tongues, they are going directly against what the apostle says. So that can't be what we're looking at here in chapter 8. But before we, get, before we go further in that, so that was a two-stage initiation. You get the Holy Spirit when you believe, but you really don't get the full experience until we lay hands and pray on you. The other viewpoint is what we'll call the one-stage initiation, meaning at the point of conversion, the point you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you get the Holy Spirit, bam, whole thing. He's not holding himself back. You get him fully. And that's, that, that's the stance we hold here at Genesis because that's what we see in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No mention of laying on of hands. Acts 10, 44, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Again, no mention of laying on of hands. Galatians 3.2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or hearing by faith? Galatians 3.14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith, not laying on of hands. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Scripture's clear that we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration. So why is this different? Why in this particular passage did the Holy Spirit choose not to fall on the believers at the moment of conversion? John Stott says this in his his commentary on the book of Acts, and I think he, he hits the nail on the head here. The Samaritan schism had lasted for centuries, like I said, thousand years or so. But now the Samaritans were being evangelized and were responding to the gospel. It was a moment of significant advance, which was also fraught with great peril. What would happen now? Would the long-standing rift be perpetuated? The gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jews? Or would there, be a separate, would there be separate factions of Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians in the church of Jesus Christ? The idea may seem unthinkable in theory. In practice, it might well have happened. There was a real danger of tearing Christ apart or at least of forming a new and separate church for themselves. Is it not reasonable to suggest, in view of this historical background, meaning that faction between the Jews and the Samaritans, that in order to avoid such a disaster, God deliberately withheld the Spirit from these Samaritan converts. The delay was only temporary, however, until the apostles had come down to investigate, had endorsed Philip's bold policy of Samaritan evangelism, had prayed for the converts, had laid hands on them as a token of fellowship and solidarity. 
and had this given a public sign to the whole church as well as to the Samaritan converts themselves that they were bona fide Christians to be incorporated into the redeemed community on precisely the same terms as Jewish converts. And I think, like I said, John Stott hits it on the head right here. It's because God did not want the factions. He wanted both the Jews and the Samaritans to know that they were one redeemed community. Despite the differences they had in culture, in language, and the hate that had gone on for so long. Paul describes it this way when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus chapter 2, in verse 14. Uh, Paul is mainly addressing the, different, the, the separation, the, the, the schism that was between Jew and Gentile, but this can also be, be applied to Jew and Samaritan. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we've seen Peter, John, Philip, all faithful and humble. They show up and they just do what they're called to do. And the only only reason there's attention drawn to them is because they're doing these miraculous things, but they're not making it about them. Now let's look at the second type of person. He's the other the other person in our story, his name's Simon, and he is the prideful and bitter. And the text tells us a few things about Simon that I want to call pre-Philip, meaning what Simon was like before Philip showed up. One, people paid attention to him because he amazed them with his magic. Look down at verse 11. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, right? We're not told anything specific about this magic. I'm pretty sure it was not the pen and teller sleight of hand kind of thing. It was probably more along the lines of what the ESV study Bible states. And it states this, magic in antiquity was practiced by both pagan and Jewish people with the goals of healing diseases, bringing physical blessing, cursing, or otherwise harming others and guarding against both curses and demons. Magicians also claim to foretell the future. Ancient literature and discovered magical books indicate that magic often involves special incantations, frequently invoking magical names of deities and demons, potions, and the use of magical objects such as amulets, incantation bowls, and figurines. So this magic that Simon's doing is demonic, to say the least. It's demonic. And he's amazing the people in Samaria with whatever he's doing. We're not given details, but he's amazing them. So that's, that's one. Two, people from the least to the greatest called him great. Go back one verse and look at verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So not only is he amazing people with whatever he's doing, People think he's awesome. People think he's awesome. And then we'll go one step further, back up to verse 9. But there was a man named Simon 
who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So not only was he amazing people with whatever he was doing, people from the least, meaning the low people on the totem pole up to the really important people, all thought he was great, which then led to him thinking himself was great. I mean, I don't know a better definition of pride than that right there. I can, I can just picture it now. He would enter a room, enter a building, enter a crowd, and it would be all about him, you know? But what was he like after Philip shows up and the apostles arrive on the scene? Look down in verse 13. Verse 13. So in verse 12, we saw that Philip came preaching the gospel of Christ, and men and women believed and were baptized. And in verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon's amazed at what Philip's doing. So whatever Simon was doing didn't even compare to what Philip does when he shows up on the scene healing lame people, driving out demons. But the problem is, this might have been a false conversion. We're not told for sure, but there are a couple indications in the passage that seem to lean that way. And we'll see those in a minute. So first of all, Philip shows up, and Simon is amazed at what's going on, so he believes and is baptized, just like some of these others, and he starts following Philip around. Second, he thinks he can buy the power of the Holy Spirit to lay hands and give people the Holy Spirit. Look in verses 18 through 22. This is after Peter and John show up on the scene, and they're praying for the new Samaritan believers and laying hands on them, and they receive the Spirit. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we might think, oh, that's pretty audacious. That, mm. But you've got to think, Simon, being this magician, this sorcerer, that was common in that circle. If you saw somebody that did something that you didn't know how to do, or knew a, a secret or whatever, you would pay them money to learn that for them to teach you or to give you that ability. So for Simon, that's not weird. But for Christianity and the ability to lay hands on people and give them the Holy Spirit, well, that's wrong. And we see that in how Peter replies in verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. There's the first indication that maybe his conversion was false. We don't know. But that's an indication. And the, reasons, the reason I say we don't know is because even after you come to faith in Christ and you're walking the Christian life, there are times when you're walking in sin and your heart's not right with God. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. It just means you're not walking in the truth. So it's not a clear indication, but it might have been a false conversion. So what is Peter's response in verse 22 ultimately? Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
So Peter rebukes him and tells him, repent and pray. Repent and pray. And then the third thing about Philip, or not Philip, Simon, after Philip shows up, is he is bitter and he's bound. Look at verse 23. This is Peter still talking to Simon. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. This is one place where I don't like how the ESV translators translated this. I mean, it's accurate. That's what the Greek says. But me being a 21st century American, I don't really understand what being in the gall of bitterness really means. So if you look at other um, Bible translations that take some of these arcane kind of phrases and make them a little bit more modern, it basically means it basically means you're full of bitterness. You are full of bitterness. And he's in the bond of iniquity. He's in bondage to this iniquity. Simon is full of bitterness and in bondage to iniquity. Why is he bitter? Why is Simon bitter? Well, think about this. We're not told specifically, but I think we can extrapolate this from the text. Why is he bitter? Because before Philip shows up, he's the dude, right? Everybody thinks he's great. He's doing all these amazing things. Everybody listens to him and thinks he's awesome. And then Philip shows up preaching the gospel, doing these miracles, and everybody starts paying attention to Philip and what Philip's saying. And now Simon, nobody listens to Simon anymore. Simon has essentially lost his power, his position, and his prestige. Yes, they all started with peace. He lost it all. He lost it all. I think if I was in Simon's shoes, I'd be bitter too. So the question is, how are you and I like Simon? How are you and I like Simon? Because whether we want to admit it or not, in one way or another, we are. We are like Simon. And you, you might think, oh, I don't think so. Hold on just a second. One thing you have to remember is that when we sin... You know, whether it's lying or cheating or outbursts of anger or gossiping or violence or, you know, the list goes on and on. There's always a sin beneath the sin. What does that, what, what does that mean? That means there's something you are not thinking correctly. There's a belief, an idea that you are holding in your heart, in your mind, that's not correct that's causing you to act out in these ways. The underlying sin that drove Simon was pride. His pride, him thinking himself was great, and then losing it all caused him to be bitter. And so let's, let's just look at that this morning. How is pride ex- expressing itself in your life and in my life? How, maybe you think, well, I'm not a, I'm not a proud person. Hold on, we'll, I, I'm going to touch on some stuff and you might be surprised. You think you don't struggle with it, and maybe you do. So all of us, and I do mean all of us, struggle with pride. We do. We might not outwardly show it, but we do. Simon, Simon's pride fleshed itself out in seeking power and position and prestige. Yours and mine very well could express itself differently. So what about you? Do you struggle with sexual sin and identity? When I was 
studying for the sermon and writing the sermon, I was completely oblivious. I knew June was coming up, but it didn't click to me until like a week ago that June is Pride Month, right? And what is Pride Month? When people that are of the LGBTQ lifestyle, just they're proud and they portray it and they shout it from the rooftops. But what about us? Do you struggle with lust or pornography? Maybe even promiscuity, unfaithfulness. Here are some ideas that might be floating in your mind. We should be able to test drive before purchasing the vehicle, right? Or you might think of it as we need to try on the pair of shoes before we buy them, meaning we need to sleep with people before we marry them. That way we know if we're compatible or not. Or maybe our husband or wife isn't what we think we deserve, so we start looking elsewhere. Or maybe the confines of marriage are antiquated, and as long as we're emotionally faithful and our spouse is on board, physical intimacy with others is okay. Maybe you're thinking it's okay to be attracted to someone of the same gender because I was born that way. Or, you know, maybe I was born with a certain set of anatomy, but I really don't feel like I mesh with that, and so I really identify with another gender, or I'm fluid. All these boil down to believing we think we know better than God about what we need, and that his design for life, relationships, marriage is faulty at best. Pride. We think we know better than God, and then that expresses itself in these ways. Maybe you struggle with anger or impatience. You know, and I like to harp on this because this is, this is one that gets me all the time, and my wife will attest to this. The anarchy we sometimes witness driving down 5th Street here in Eureka. People just driving down the middle lane. People driving down the shoulder to make a right-hand turn. If somebody's taking too long to make a right-hand turn in like the Dickie Bubs parking lot, people swerve into the path, into this middle lane to go around them. All this anarchy drives me nuts. Maybe you get impatient or angry because you have to wait too long in the drive-through. Maybe it's because your kids don't listen the first through fourth time you tell them to do or not to do something. And most of the time, it's you're telling them not to do it, and now the whole time, they're doing it while staring right at you. Don't touch it. Don't touch it kind of thing, you know? Um, Or maybe your spouse doesn't do something the way you want it done in the time frame you want it done in. Or how about God doesn't answer our prayers quick enough or the way we want? Thus, we think our timing is best, And our wants and desires are most important. That's really what it boils down to. Again, it's pride. My wants and desires are more important than everybody else, so come on. Let's get this drive-through moving. Maybe you struggle with self-image. Does your home always have to be clean and arranged just so? Think Monica from the sitcom Friends. Everything had to be just right. And it, I mean, and she would notice it too if it wasn't in the right spot or turned just, I mean, are you one of those people? 
Maybe you have to have the latest fashion trend. Looking around here, I don't think we all struggle with that, but maybe that is. Um, Maybe. Uh, Maybe you always have to look put together. You know, you don't want anybody to see you, you know, unkempt. I've heard stories of wives who never let their husbands see them without makeup. I mean, that's just crazy. That's crazy talk. But I've heard that, and I was like, what? Or maybe we want our kids to behave. Not that that's a bad thing. You want them to behave at the store, at school, in the neighborhood, at church. But why do you want that? All the self-image boils down to we don't want anything to reflect poorly on us. We want to look good in front of other people. We don't want people to think less of us. Again, pride. Maybe you struggle with humility. In parentheses, false humility. When someone praises you for something and you respond with something like, no, 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 really, really, no, 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 I'm fine, no, it's, uh, no, no, you know, the whole time thinking, yeah, keep, keep telling me how good I am. It makes me feel good. Or maybe, and I've struggled with this, this one in the past, have you ever had the thought that you've sinned so bad that God could never forgive you? You think, oh, how's that prideful? It, it took me a while to kind of grasp that, but it is. It's prideful to think that you've sinned so bad that an infinitely loving God could never forgive you. And that's pride. So how do we combat being bitter and prideful? How do we combat this pride? Well, we've got to listen to what Peter says. We must repent and pray. In 1 John 1, 9, we're told if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And two, we've got to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Lord. Look at James chapter 4. In the first three verses, just as, as I read through this, just hear the pride that's underneath what's being said. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Just can you not hear the pride underneath all that? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously, over the spirit that is made to dwell in us? Verse 6 but he gives more grace. Even if you are here this morning and you're struggling with some of the stuff I've already mentioned, and maybe it's something I didn't touch on, 
If you're struggling, God is there. He wants to give more grace, but you've got to humble yourself. You've got to repent. You've got to confess your sin, and you've got to come before him humble. Verse 7, or I'm sorry, the end of verse 6, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I would encourage you this, 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 today, this afternoon, this coming week, start thinking about what you've done in the past that you know is, is sin, and start asking God to reveal why. Why did, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why do I think this way? Is it something I'm not believing correctly about his word or about God? Do I not think he's good enough? Do I, don't, do I think he doesn't love me enough? Do I think that I know better? But we have to come and we have to be humble. And when he does reveal that, we have to be ready to repent and ask for forgiveness. And before, uh, before I close, we need to look at verse 25 real quick. The end of the passage. The apostles return to Jerusalem. And as they're returning, they're preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. As we leave today, as we go about our week, wherever you find yourself, take the gospel with you in humility and faithfulness. That might just be here in Eureka. That might be North City amongst African-American people. It might be South City where you might be coming in contact with Bosnians or uh, folks from uh, Iran, Iraq. Afghanistan, Middle Eastern people. It may be that God's taking you back to Papua New Guinea. Wherever the Lord takes you, take the gospel with you and share it. I'm going to ask the, uh, the band to head up here. Everybody else, I want you to just close your eyes for a second, bow your heads, and just think. Think about this real quick. This past week, when you've blown it. Maybe even this morning and you've blown it. Why? What was it that caused you to say or act or do what you did? Repent. Ask for forgiveness right now. Know that God, through his Son, the Lord Jesus, is here to give more grace. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much for your Son and what you offer to us through him. Father, we don't boast in anything like we sang earlier. We don't boast in anything. None of our gifts, no power, no wisdom, nothing. 
but we boast in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection. That is all we have. Everything else is fleeting. Everything else will be turned to ash and rubble. Father, I just ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Reveal to us where pride has wiggled its way in, so much so that we don't even recognize it. Help us to see that and repent well. And that you would empower us to overcome those wrong thoughts, those wrong ideas, that through your spirit you would reveal to us the truth and that we would walk in it. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray this week as we meditate on it that through the power of your spirit you would make us more like your son, the risen and alive Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.